You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features South Bronx native Tyron Pope. After a chance meeting in his school counselor's office, Tyron ended up leaving New York at age 14 to attend a prestigious boarding school in the Midwest. After high school graduation, he made his way back to the East Coast to attend NYU on a scholarship, a scholarship that he eventually lost. So Tyron took some time off, but developed another strategy to finish his degree. He got a job in the clerk's office on campus. But while waiting to be eligible for employee tuition reimbursement, another opportunity presented itself. Back when he was in high school, Tyron's mother encouraged him to take various exams for city jobs while home on summer break. And years later, those exams gave him options, one of which was to enter the police academy. So he chose to put school on hold and ended up serving 21 years in the NYPD. After retirement, Tyron not only finished his bachelor's degree, but obtained a master's in business leadership and at the time of this recording was preparing to defend his dissertation to receive his doctorate in education. Tyron has had a unique journey and he has a story to tell. So please take a listen and enjoy. Tyron, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You're really hitting me with the bedroom voice right now. (laughs) Am I? I'm sorry. I'm soft-spoken. Some people would say I'm kind of like loud at times, but nah. I I can see that it's in there. I'm soft-spoken. Yeah, and you have like a presence about you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, people used to tend to say it kind of be overbearing in a way and Mm -hmm. in a minute, like a little bit intimidating. But, you know, I consider myself a teddy bear, you know? But um, okay. like my mom says, he's a quiet storm. He's a quiet storm. You know, everything's quiet right now, but don't ruffle his feathers. I, I can sense that. You I know? can sense that for sure. You know, I'm a Pisces, so, you know, fish sign. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I flow with the water. Gotcha. You know, the way, you know, you know, fish can, you know, I can be a shark at times. Or, you know, I, I can be a piranha, you know, or I can be a goldfish. A goldfish, though? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, nah, let's say a koi. All right. Got it. So I before you it. get into what else you could be, let me ask the question. Okay. And then you can answer it for real, for real. Who is Tyron Pope? Um, who is Tyron Pope? Can I start off with a quote? Sure. All right. Um, basically, in my high school yearbook, I had a quote in my high school yearbook, and it said, define courage. And it said, um, and it was a quote from um, a football coach. He was a special teams football coach. His name was Frank Gantz. He coached the Kansas City Chiefs. And it was defined courage. And it said, those are the men who are afraid, but they go anyway. Okay. You know, and he was a World War II vet. And he gave that quote. And I said that quote kind of summed up my life mm-hmm. in a way. You know, um, define courage, those who are afraid, but they go anyway. And it kind of followed me through the course of my life because, you know, I, I think I always took on challenges. Sure. So take me back to the first time where you felt afraid or challenged by something but decided to go anyway. What's your earliest memory there? My earliest memory of being afraid but going anyway is when I left New York City in 1984 to pursue my education. I got a scholarship to a, a boarding school at that time. It was one of the top 
top 10 boarding schools in the country. It's called Western Reserve Academy. At that time, it was like one of the only um, really major like boarding schools in the Midwest. It was mm-hmm. in a little small town called Hudson, Ohio, right outside of Cleveland, in between Cleveland, Akron, and Canton, in the heart of, the, of Northeastern Ohio, LeBron's country. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a gentleman by the name of uh, Skip Flanagan, um, Henry Flanagan, he was the headmaster, uh, you know, or the head of the school at Western Reserve Academy, along with another gentleman um, named Troutman. You know, they came out to the South Bronx looking for kids to sort of like change their lives and, um, you know, and give them a challenge and, you know, um, make them better. And um, they gave me an opportunity in 1984 to go away to one of one of the top boarding schools in the country. And I'm keep going to say I'm a big up Western Reserve Academy because it's part of me as well. And you know, I left I left New York at a time when New York was in the midst of a war. Right. So you're a kid. A, a war. A crack war. You're crack time. era South Bronx. You're yeah. a kid. You're 14 years old, right? Yeah. Heading into young manhood. Um, but these these folks come. From Ohio, mm-hmm. how did they find you and the other students? Well, I went to a small. I went to. Uh, I was, you know, product of New York. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, New York City school system board education. Um, I went to a school called um, Clark Elijah, Elijah D. Clark Junior High School, one forty nine. It's in um, South Bronx, right on Willis Avenue, um, Patterson Millbrook Projects, right around there, that area. St. Mary's houses, big up. Bronx Chester Houses, <laughs> you know, I'm a product of NYCHA. Um, and they had a program where they partnered up with a, a nonprofit called A Better Chance. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, it was a middle school that went from a junior high school that went from um, grade seven to nine, you know. Um, and if you were sort of an advanced type of kid, you can get skipped at times from seventh grade to ninth grade. They had that program that happened to me as from well. From seventh straight to ninth. Yeah, from okay. seventh to ninth. That happened to me as well. I was in a program where I actually skipped the grade seven and nine. But, you know, when I had skipped that grade, things kind of got, you know, it, it wasn't too hard or anything like that. But I didn't get into the New York City high schools that I wanted to get okay. into. So I made that decision. I said, you know what? Can I go back and repeat my ninth grade again because and be back with my friends mm-hmm. again? So I did ninth grade over again. Really? So you went yeah. from skipping a grade. Yeah, and I went back so to give myself a chance because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew where, where I wanted to go. You know, I knew I wanted to go to, you know, one of these boarding schools. I knew I wanted that opportunity. I wanted to place myself in that, in that, uh, in that, in that group. So, you know, these schools used to come around, um, Phillips, Andover, Exeter, Groton, Hodgkiss, you know, Trinity School. Choke, all of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. all of these schools, you know, and to have that opportunity. And uh, along with the schools like Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, um, Stuyvesant, you know, most of those schools. And to have that opportunity at that time, I was thinking ahead. That's how I was thinking, you know, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. That was my dream, you know. That was my dream to be a civil rights lawyer, to be an activist. You know, my dream was to be Thurgood Marshall. You know, that was my dream, to be a civil rights attorney. Um, I, I grew up in a family of activists. My grandmother, my my grandmother, my aunts, you know, they ran a block association. It's called the Trinity Avenue Block Association. You know, um, big ups to them. I'm bringing this coming to tears right now, mm-hmm. thinking about it, because those women helped create what I am today. They helped raise me. I'm sorry. No, we 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 are big on authenticity here on this show. <laughs> and anybody who has listened to any episode with DeMarcus yeah. and, and me know we are 
we are all that we are because we stand on the shoulders. Yeah, when I think about my grandmother, you know, it just brings tears to my eyes. I think about my aunt and listening to your own podcast. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they called me what I had to because I tend to have my emotions on my shoulders, whatever, mm-hmm. my arms. Listen to your podcast. My cousin was on your podcast and I listened to him talk and it really turned up my heart because I didn't expect that coming from him. Mm-hmm. You know, and him saying that I was such an influence in his life. I mean, I'm sorry for being so emotional right now, but listening to your podcast, listening to him, you know, it made me feel like I came full circle. Yeah. You know, it made me feel like those lessons that we learned, you know, came into fruition. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm very proud of him. Proud of the man that he became, you know, or he's becoming, mm-hmm. he's still evolving. Paul Thomas, love you. Shout out to Paul Thomas. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes we we do have tissue in here somewhere. Damn, I got to get together. <laughs> this, is, this is what happens on this show, man. You know? I'm telling you. But, you know, we... Don't let these dudes see it. Oh, my They going to roast you. They going to roast you. Roast me on the thread. <laughs> <laughs> they going to roast me on the thread. I mean, yeah, you could be a tough guy, but still, you know, you could be a little bit emotional. Sometimes, you know, like, I remember I remember I had, you know, when I joined up with the New York City Police Department, and we'll get into that, too. Mm-hmm. There was a time where a police supervisor, when I was a rookie cop, told me that my emotions would, um, would hinder me in my police work. Mm-hmm. And I told him, no. They will not. They'll just make me more understanding of where I came from, what I need to do, and how I need to treat my people. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of anything. You know, you know, I set I set out in a, a, a route for my life. I, I feel like it kind of got derailed at one point, but I set out in a route for my life to, you know, um, be that man. Mm-hmm. You know, to be that husband. But I never was, <laughs> you know, um, you know, to be that father, that father that I am, mm-hmm. you know, you know, to be that big brother, you know, to be that, to be that, to be that crutch, that crutch, you know, on your side, to be there for when, when, it, when the time is needed, you know, face a lot of challenges, seen a lot of things. It's hard for a 14 year old at that time to leave New York when New York was what it was to go out to the Midwest where you knew nobody. Right. I had no family there. Right. I had no family there. You know, I knew no one. It was a whole different culture. You know, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming from a place where, you know, I'm riding iron horse every day. I'm taking the train, the bus. I'm walking to places day by day to come into a place where I'm sitting down for meals, hot meals, you know, mm-hmm. hot meals daily, you know, a place to sleep, you know, and walking and you're there with kids, who have things that you can only imagine, you know, having. You know, I, I remember, you know, being in a dorm room and having seen a kid with an Apple computer, the first one, some Mac, you know, something that, you know, I probably would have never been able to have put my hands on before, you know. I see a kid, 16 years old, driving to school in a brand new whip that wasn't paid for by drug money, mm-hmm. you know, going to school with, with kids who, who actually, you know, who actually came from families who had influence. Right. So I, we often say, like, on this show that I think we, many of us who come from just working class, hardworking families who can see a better way, we are so focused often on how do I get to achieving the next thing mm-hmm. that we don't stop 
and really take a moment to like soak it all in, not just how people have impacted us, but how you've impacted other people. Like yeah. Paul, the Pauls of the world, right? Who yeah, shattered yeah, you out yeah, on the yeah, show. Yeah. His his um his testimony here, mm -hmm. you know, tugged at my heart. You know, just he he texted to me, you know, um, I sat in my car and I just listened to it, you know, and it just, you know, just tugged at my heart. And, you know, I was like, I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't like, you know, like something like, oh, you know, I want to take this kid, even though I'm eight years older than him. You know, I'm 16. He's eight. Mm -hmm. You know, I had him with me. You know, he's like my first son. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like my first son and whatnot, you know, so kind of deep. Yeah. You know, kind of deep. And did you did you have I know you grew up with like an army of women around you. Of course. Do you feel like you had that? Yeah, you had yeah. the village of women. Did yeah. you feel like you had that male influence? And if not, did that you know, is what I had male influence in my life as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, in the you know, in a traditional African American family, you know, the women run <laughs> run the show, you know, mm -hmm. run the ship. You know, my grandmother, you know, she was a matriarch of the family and she ran and she ran it. She got she ran the boat. She guided it, you know, and she made sure that, you know, her boys, you know, that we grew up self-proficient, you know, that we knew how to go food shopping at the age of 10. Mm -hmm. I used to walk around with a bunch of other little kids and we have a, a list of what we had to go and pick out. And if you and if you picked out the wrong kind of greens, God you would have you. to go back, <laughs> you know, picked out a messed up yam, you would have to go take that back. So we learned how to, you know, maneuver, you know, at, at an early age. So take me back to having these um, administrators from uh, boarding school coming to New York and it, saying, hey, we, we want was, you. What was the conversation it, it, you had with your mom? It, it, it was funny because, you know, at that time they were coming to look for someone else. Really? Yeah. I just happened to, you know, be in with the guidance counselor who was at the school at that time. And his name was John Linenhan. And he was a guidance counselor. And he was the one who, who dealt with a lot of, the, you know, you know, institutions coming in and out and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, and at that time, at that day, you know, I used to always go to his office and pick his brain and always mess with him and whatnot and joke. And that day I walked into, I busted into his office and I just was like, Mr. Linehan, just talking to him, boom, boom, back and forth and whatnot. And he knew me. He knew where I came from. He knew, you know, what type of kid I was, you know, he knew what I was into, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. And there was a man standing behind his door mm. and he just stood there quiet and he watched me interact with Mr. Linehan. And that man had that was his first day there. His name was his name was Henry Skip Flanagan. Mm -hmm. And he said no more. He said, that's the kid I want. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. He said, I want him. So your mom says, do so, it, go. So, so what happened is he called Mr. Linhead. He left, he wanted to believe in and whatnot. He knew he knew what type of profile I had or whatever like that. When why he wanted to believe in, he made that offer to Mr. Linhead. Mr. Linhead brought me into this office with our principal at that time, Mr. Carbazon, and they laid it out to me. And they said, you know, this, this is an opportunity that may lay out for you, you know, and um you can go um tell your mom. You know, what's going on? Because at that time, I already put in for Bronx Science. Mm -hmm. I already got into Brooklyn Tech. I didn't make it to, this, to Stuyvesant, but I got into art and design. I got into music and art. Got into A. Philip Randolph. All these schools at that time. Mm -hmm. And at that time, also, they had a brand new school coming up called Manhattan Center, which all my friends actually wound up going to. Okay. The old Benjamin Franklin, 116th. 
you know, near the, near the river, mm-hmm. near the FDR. So, you know, at that time, you know, I was like, you know what, you know, let me tell my mom about this, you know, um, you know, this, this opportunity might, might come up. So they say, you know what, this is what we do. You know, if your mom wants to come out, you know, we'll fly you, your mother, you can come out and check out the school. At that time, my mom was a working mom. My mom mm-hmm. worked for the New York City Police Department. She started off with um, the Transit Police Department, you know? My mom was a working, work hard working woman, you mm-hmm. know, every day. Rain, sleep, snow, sun, and shine. She was at work, and that's where I get that work ethic from. My mom, my mom couldn't make the trip, so the guidance counselor that, you know, that was there at that time, he made the trip with me. We mm-hmm. went out to see that school on February 14th, 1984. Wow. I remember that date, you know, Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. 19, that weekend, that day, I went out to Ohio to see this school. First thing I first thing we did, we got off the plane in Cleveland. It was cold. I was about to say, I know it was brick. February brick. in, in Freezing. Cleveland. <laughs> Freezing. That's why to this day, these winters, they're nothing <laughs> to me. <laughs> You know, being out there, I'm talking about it's snowing. I was like, ain't going to be no school school day. Nah, you live here at the school. <laughs> we shoveled this. We shoveled We shoveled this. Lace up your boots. Piled up like this. We shoveled this walkway through so you can make it to class. You know? So that's how it was. It, it was just like a college campus. Mm-hmm. You know? And it was something that I was like, oh, this is what college is going to be like if you go away. Because even though it was a prep school, boarding school, it was like what college was like going to be like. Right. You lived there. You lived in a dorm. You went to classes. Your classes were scheduled. They were like altered. Mm-hmm. You know, alternating. You could set your own schedule up and whatnot. You could take classes. Classes went. We went to school six days a week. Six. Six days a week. Monday through Saturday. Wow. And I was like, you know what? Regardless, it's a wrap. I'm coming. You're like, I <laughs> you know? will go to class yeah, on I'm Saturday. Gonna, I'm, I'm gonna come. You know, so I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna take that. What you call it? A lot of people. You know, a lot of you know, a lot of family members and and whatnot. You know, kind of gave my mom a hard time and mm-hmm. about it and whatnot. Because how could you let you know your little son go away to somewhere and live out there nine months out of the year? Yeah. You know, I mean, I always come would come home. You know, and that first time I went out there, you know, that first couple of months was sort of hard because you know what, you know what, it it, it came. To, I come, I'm come. I came from a place where you know I only dealt with black and Latino kids. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Caucasians that I did deal with, you know, being from the South Bronx, were in the positions of power, were my school teachers, mm-hmm. administrators, you know, policemen, you know, back and forth like that. You know, they weren't in my life like that. But being out there, you know, being able to intermingle and live was a totally, you know, different thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, something that I had to, you know, really, you know, come to terms with, you know. So I, I say this often, I grew up twice. Right. I grew up twice. I grew up in poverty and I grew up in affluence. So what's that like, you know, coming into that environment and not only seeing people who don't look like you, but that socioeconomic gap as well. Um, Did you have second thoughts or were you like, I'm just, I'm going to adjust? Of course, of course you had second thoughts because, you know, there were certain things that, you know, that they had that I didn't have access to. Yeah. You know, you know, and even though, you know, you know, we had certain things, you know, there was, you know, like, you know, even though that school was a boarding school, you know, kids lived on the campus. You still had kids that were from that state that, you know, on the weekends, they can go home. Yeah. You know, I had to live there 24-7. I had to be there. You know, I couldn't leave, you know, or whatever. I could only do certain things, you know. I came back to New York in 88 after it was all said and done. After I graduated, I came back to New York. I, put, I applied to a bunch of schools from out there. Uh, I really wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my heart set on that. 
you know, but, um, you know, I think I had like 13, 50 SATs or something like that. But, you know, being going, being able to go to the Naval Academy, you know, you have to have congressional approval. You have to be yes. sponsored by mm-hmm. a congressman. Yes. So I had dual state ship or whatever you want to call it. I lived in Ohio half the year and the other half the year I lived in New York. And the New York congressman, I think at that time, Jose Serrano, he had his person, you know, and then the congressman from out there in Hudson, they already had their person. Mm -hmm. So I'm like caught in the middle and whatnot. So, you know, I was like, uh, you know, if you want to do that, you probably have to enlist regularly and then go through like, I think I was at that time they were talking about the Marine platoon leader class and I was like, nah, 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 nah. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to apply to colleges and whatnot. And then at that time, you know, being at their school, the school, not for, not for nothing, I give big ups to Western Reserve Academy because they were conscious at that time and they used to have conscious speakers come to the school and come out. At they, a boarding school, predominantly a boarding high, school. affluent boarding yeah, school. Yeah, they had John Hope Franklin, one of the major historians of Alpha Phi mm-hmm. Alpha, you know, fraternity, come out and speak at my school. I met him as a as a 14-year-old. I'm actually shocked by that. Yeah. I met him. He spoke at a predominantly white boarding school, African-American history. Mm-hmm. I had his book. I had him. I didn't know the levity of that until I'm a grown man. Yeah. And I think back and I was like, listen, I actually sat at a table with this man, you know, and talked to him at a predominantly white school, <laughs> board right. school, you know. But um, that was one, you know, and then a college president from at that time, president, one of the presidents from Morehouse that came to our school mm-hmm. at that time. I actually applied to Morehouse and I didn't get it. And I was hurt (laughs) in my senior year. I was hurt, but I got into NYU the next day. So didn't get into Morehouse, got into NYU. The next day. The next day. You know, so I kind of like did it reverse. I went away to high school and came Came home for college. And then when I came home for college, all my friends that were here, they all went away to college and they went to HBCUs Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of them went to BWIs, you know, and stuff like that. But, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, I came back and I met a whole bunch new uh, set Mm -hmm. of friends. So what was your major at NYU? My major at NYU, (laughs) I was a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I started off Stern School of Business, you know, I was a business major, you know, and then, you know, at that time, you know, I felt like the business world, you know, they were like, cutthroat and suit and tie and you know everybody was like about greed and about getting money and I come from a family that's you know that's social activists you yeah. know that we you know we hands on you know and I want to feel my people in my work in the work I do and in in a way you know kind of going to public service and you know being a life of public service and, co- and going to the police department because one thing I credit to my mother every summer I came home from boarding school, she made sure that one, that, you know, you get out on the road and you go get yourself a, a job for the summer. Mm-hmm. And two, here's the chief. Every Wednesday it comes out, they list every uh, exam that's going to be for, for city job during the summer. Pick one, you're taking one, mm-hmm. you know? And at that time, you know, most of the exams were free at that time. Mm-hmm. You just take the take the exam and then you get a list to, for any city job. And I took a bunch of them and she said, Soup du jour, pick one up, pick whatever. You got postal, you got fire, you got NYPD, you got transit police department, you got housing police department, because they were different police parts mm-hmm. at the time. You have you have postal police, you have this, you have that, you have sanitation. I took them all. Mm-hmm. 
And I was on a whole bunch of lists, you know, at that time. You know, I was on a whole bunch of lists. I was on the city list for the city PD. I was on a list for housing, list for transit. You know, I was on a sanitation list. I was on the FDNY list, you know, and, 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 it, and it goes on and on. It was a bunch of transit worker lists. I was on everything. I took a whole bunch of exams when I came home. But what I find interesting about this is like, the going to boarding school, yeah. like you are being groomed yeah. to go to un- universities like NYU, Boom. go into academia, politics, Boom. corporate, Boom. that's it. So did you so, ever stop, like even Boom. from a, so, an ego-driven perspective? So, so listen, yeah. so here we go. The development of this man, you know, and that tugged at me mm-hmm. for years, you know, because I made that sacrifice early in my life to get toward that, Yeah, you know? And I wind up getting to NYU. I wind up getting the start business. At that time, I said, you know, business wasn't for me. I transferred to the uh, Washington Square College, which is the liberal arts, uh, liberal arts version. And I decided to make, at, at one time, I was undecided what I was going to do, but I was good at English. Okay. You know, I had great grades in English, great grades in writing and stuff like that. But I said, you know what? My father was an architect. He was an estimator, mm-hmm. you know, one of the rarer few, you know, and a draftsman. And I was always around that as a kid. And I said to myself, maybe, you know what? My course might be urban planning. Really? You know, so I majored in um, metropolitan studies mm-hmm. with the focus on, you know, because before I told you before, when I got into boarding school, I also got into art and design, Yeah, got into music and art. A majoring in urban planning and not just designing buildings, but designing neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was driven, you know. And at the same time, I minored in Spanish. And let me just say, which I keep, yeah, first of all, me, which I keep close to me. I also minored I, in Spanish. And I don't let too many people really know that, whatever, because it worked to my advantage when I worked in narcotics and it worked to my <laughs> advantage when I worked around a bunch of, you know, people who spoke <laughs> Spanish. And it was my my undercover weapon. So there were very people, there were very few people in the police department that would talk bah, 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 and, and whatnot. And then there was some that'd be like, "Don't say nothing. <laughs> don't, don't don't talk. Don't talk. He knows what you talk. He knows what you talking about." And just sitting there like this. And that and that and that and that too. Also, it comes from growing up in a largely Hispanic Latino mm-hmm. neighborhood in the South Bronx. You know, it was mixed. But my area where I came from was the, like, little, you know, li- little San Juan, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, 156 and Brook Avenue needs to have festivals, you know? Um, most, most of the kids I grew up with, you know, are Afro-Latino, you know? And that's who, you know, those, that's my people. Right. You know, we're, we're part of that culture, you know? And also, I don't, I, you had mentioned Spanish teachers who were mentors to you. Yeah. Some of my most like highest esteemed mentors from high school and college are Spanish teachers. I don't know what it is about Spanish teachers, but I have like a similar story that they, they, maybe it's just anecdotal. I don't know. But a lot of people I know too, their favorite teacher from high school was their Spanish teacher. I don't know what that's about, but. Yeah, my favorite teacher from high, well, from high school. Yeah, from high school, my Spanish teacher, Mr. Mr. Frazier, you know, he really like, and then when everybody else was out in his senior year, in the spring, playing or whatever, whatever, I was in his house mm-hmm. studying for my Spanish final. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, but so you end up metropolitan studies, thinking about urban planning. Yeah. But you go from NYU um, to the police department. to the NYPD. Yep. 
My best friend. Never would have thought my, I'd hear that my trajectory. Best friend, well, you know what? There's a story behind that, too. Okay, so give it to us. My best friend in college, his name is Seth Bryant. One of my best friends in college. My other best friend in college was um, Kenneth Darby, who became a New York City school public, t- public school teacher. And Seth became a lawyer, you know? Seth Bryant, you know? And I almost left, mm-hmm. you know, at one time. And Seth talked me out of it. You know, he was like, nah, you're not going to go to Marines. You're not going to do that. You're going to stay here with me. We're going to get this African-American studies department going here. This is what's needed. You're going to stay here with me. I need you here, you know, at that time. I was like, cool. I was with it, you know, and I didn't didn't go. I stayed, you know, and, you know, but it came to the time where I loved college and, you know, I, I loved I love the village, mm-hmm. you know, and I was a young man. And even though, you know, my at that time I did young men things, you know, you know, instead of being in class, I was in the park, <laughs> you know, you know, I, you know, I lost lost weight a little bit. And you talking about the time when, you know, things were just developing. I mean, you know, you know, Tip and Fife were in the park mm-hmm. right there, you know, Buster, you know, like a whole bunch of people. You know, we had we had the tunnel. We had we had the Palladium Wednesday nights, college nights. You know, we had the Red Zone on Thursday nights. You know, that's when house music was popping. The Village, 8th Street. You know, the Village Cobbler, that's where I worked also, mm-hmm. you know, shoe stores. I remember I sold Bobby Brown those <laughs> shoes that he had on in that video, the ones with the little tip, the silver tip on them, and he signed up. Not with the silver that. tip, though. Yeah, 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 those Zodiacs. Mm-hmm. I saw, I'm the one who sold him that shoe, those, those, those shoes. And he came in, I ran around to Tower Records, got his got his cassette CD, had him sign it, because, you know, it was, that's the one he was on the cover. I think that's the one with my prerogative was on mm-hmm. it, whatever he was on the cover. And I ran around, had him sign it, gave it to my cousin. You know, she was a big Bobby Brown fan. Elizabeth gave it to my cousin. I was like, here, here you go. I had two of them. I, had, I bought, bought two, because back then you had cassette tapes. Right. So I bought two tapes. He signed both of them. I kept one and I gave one to my cousin back in the day. You know, I used to look out, you know, but I hung out. I did things. I enjoyed. Yeah. I enjoyed myself in college big time, you know, and but I also enjoyed school, mm-hmm. you know, and at that time, being, that being said, you know, even though I came from a regimented background, especially when it came to academic, you know, standards and stuff like that, you know, I still, you know what? I, I, you have to get, to, I'm still a young man and you have to get to know yourself. Mm-hmm. And that being said, I am not a morning person. Don't take early I morning classes evening, if you are not. late night person. <laughs> so one thing to you young men who are planning to go to college, and I stress this to my sons to this day, if you are not a morning person, do not take morning classes. Skip that 8 a.m. Skip that you know, AMM class. I had that 8 a.m. history class where I thought I was getting over, you know, because I'm coming <laughs> from the Bronx. Cause I didn't At that time, I didn't live on the campus. I, was, I, I commuted from the Bronx and I used to come in and that eight, and there was a two-hour class or whatnot. It went from 8 to 10, you know, and I get in there like around 9 o'clock or whatever and it was one of those classes that was like an auditorium mm-hmm. style and whatnot and you got like four entrances you could come in. You could come in through the bottom on both sides or you could come in through the top and whatnot, and I'm me, I'm thinking that, hey, you know what? He's not going to know who I am or whatever like that because it's like a hundred or something students in the class or whatever because it's like that. And one day I came in and he said, hey, Mr. Pope. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I'm sneaking in and whatnot. And at that time, he's like, yo, listen, you know, you know, I'm giving these tests and whatnot, <laughs> but you passing them and what, but you ain't here. <laughs> or you hardly here or you come late. You know, for this one class, he was like, yeah, you come late. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and 
and whatnot. And that opened up my eyes to things too. But one class I never missed, I never missed my English classes. I never missed my writing classes. Mm -hmm. And that kept me on point. And, uh, you know, so, and to this day, I always say that, you know, love to express myself. Right. So how, how did you go though from NYU to NYPD? NYU to NYPD. All right. Um, things happen. Budget cuts come into play. Grades come into play, and my 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 scholarship got cut in half at NYU, mm -hmm. and it came to a point where I had to make a decision. What what was I going to do? You know, um, so you know that being, I was connected with I was I had connected myself with aligned myself with the um, upper echelon at NYU. I worked for Leslie Berlowitz at that time during my work study program in the Office of Academic Affairs. You know, I I basically you know had a great relationship and, you know, I wound up getting a job at NYU, mm -hmm. you know, and it kind of saved me. So at that time, you know, even though my scholarship was cut in half and I didn't know where I was going to go with it or anything like that, I wound up getting a permanent position at NYU, you know, as, mm -hmm. a, as a clerk, office clerk. Okay. And that being said, you know, that was another chance for me to continue my education. You know, I might have been delayed and I had to take a semester off mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. But it gave me that opportunity to, you know, continue. But during that time, you know, you have to work three months in order to get tuition permission, okay. you know, and that was coming into play. So during that time when I was working full time at NYU as an office clerk and, you know, I was going to re-enter this, this system this time, you know, through actually working for the university itself. All those tests that I took when I was a younger man that my mom made me take, they were all coming, coming up, coming up. Mm -hmm. And I started getting office and I, and I was turning a lot of them down, you know, until finally, you know, there was a point where, you know what, one night I went out with my friends and I told your brother this story and we were invited to a party at Manhattan college. And we had a friend who was on a wrestling team at Manhattan college at that time. And it was myself, a bunch of friends from NYU and some friends from my neighborhood, actually my cousin's people that I grew up with from my neighborhood, a bunch of males, we all went and gathered up and we went to the party that we were invited to at Manhattan College. We had a great time, mm -hmm. but at the end of the night, it wasn't so great. Mm -hmm. So as we're walking out of the out of the gates of Manhattan College, you know, and their priests there and whatnot, because, you know, it's a Catholic university right. or whatever like that, church or whatever like that. You know, we're being escorted. You know, we're walking out. The students are there. You know, they invited us. We're having fun and whatnot until the night was over. And it's around this time of the year. It's like fall and whatnot. And guess who's waiting for us at the gate? An NYPD lieutenant in his white shirt, tall guy from the 50th precinct and a bunch of rookie officers. He sees us come to the to the gate. He gets out. He gets out his patrol car with a bullhorn at that time. And he tells us, get the fuck out of my neighborhood. Really? So y'all was students. We are students. Just coming to another school, which all students. students do in metropolitan areas. We, and they yep. were waiting for you. He were waiting for us, you know, and a bunch of rookie cops with him and whatnot, you know. And he was like, yo, get stepping. You're not moving too fast. Like I said, get the fuck out of my neighborhood. This is Riverdale. This mm -hmm. is the five old precinct. Precincts that I avoid driving through. Even when I was a cop, mm -hmm. <laughs> there were certain precincts in the Bronx that as a black man, a person of color, that I would not drive through mm -hmm. at that time. You know, so that being said, this lieutenant, you know, he was just he was just hard with it. And he was like, yo, y'all got to get the fuck out. You're walking too slow. 241st Street, 
Van Cortland Park train station is right there. Get to stepping. Walk. So we're walking, and it's about 10 of us. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the ghetto boys that came out with some song, my mind's playing tricks on me and whatnot like that. And one of my and one of one of my friends, you know, started singing the song. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's like, this week, this week, Halloween's falls on the weekend. Me and ghetto boys are trick or treat. And you know, he, you know, he starts singing, you know, laughing for laughs, you know, and then he and then he says the part, you know, my mind's playing tricks on me. And this guy takes it, you know, not knowing our culture, not knowing where we're from or where we're like that. He just had he just sees has tone vision that this kid, that we're a bunch of kids, you know, getting smart with him or whatever like that. And he just gets out the car, comes out with a stick, you know, grabs us, grab, grabs one of us up, locks him up, you know, takes him to the precinct and was like, yo, y'all could get on the train and don't y'all show your black asses at the precinct or y'all get locked up too. So don't, don't even come to try yeah. to bail your home so way out. We went anyway. Of course. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what we do. Right. We went anyway. You told the wrong group of men not to come. Mm-hmm. We went anyway. And we stood in front of the precinct. Like it was something out of a Spike Lee movie. Right there. We stood right in front of the precinct. Right there, 231st. We stood right there. Five stood right in front of the precinct. Cop comes out, says, Lou, they're outside. Yeah, we're outside. And we're going to wait until he comes out. And it left a real bad taste in my mouth. You know, mm-hmm. it left a real bad taste, real bad feeling in my heart. You know, and my friends, they didn't like the police, <laughs> you know? Right. I can't come from where I came from, didn't like the police at all, regardless or whatever, you know? So I went back to NYU that next week or whatever, and I told that story to my supervisor who was there at that time, an older Irishman. And at that time, I was offered the job to come on the NYPD. And even though my mother worked for the transit police department at that time, and my aunt worked, Paul's mother, worked for the transit police department at that time, and my uncles worked for the police department at that time, I still had that that feeling, you know, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do it, you know? And they kept offering the gig, and it was like, this is the last time, you know, we're going to offer it to you or whatever, whatever like that. And then this older Irishman, you know, came. And we had to sit down, we talked, and he was like, listen, I understand this is what happened, you know, but you're given offered this opportunity to make a change. Mm -hmm. And you say you're about change. I see you here with these kids and you guys, you're protests and you're trying to get this African-American studies department going at NYU. Because at that time, NYU didn't have African-American studies department. And he said, I see you around the campus and, you know, you have a voice. He said, you know what? You can always come back here. If you can't beat them, see what you can do with the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't your mother work for the police department? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, he's like, he's like, yo, see what you can do. You know, you're always welcome here. You can come back, finish up. You you, you just left in your senior year. All you got to do is finish your major. You're good. If you go, if you want to, if you go there, you go to the academy, you say this is not for you. You know what? You can come back. So I ended up going and entering the police academy. And you know what? I said, you know what? If it, I'm, I'm not about that, if I can't beat them, then join them. Because it was never that with me. Mm-hmm. You know, my thing was, I'm going to try to make my own little difference and fight battles. I'm not going to be able to win every battle. Like my grandma said, you're not going to be win every battle. But the, the ones that you are engaged in, the ones that you can win, you know what? You live for that day. Right. You know? And you might not think, you know, winning those small battles might not help, but in the, those small battles that you win, they accumulate, you know, and they become accumulated victories. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that's my story, how I joined the police department. I wound up, you know, joining the housing police department at that time because my sister actually works in the police department. <laughs> and my sister worked for the housing police department. And she was like, yo, if you want to get on real quick, if you want to come through, whatever, come, come, come here, come to housing, because you're from the projects. You're from NYCHA. You're a product of NYCHA. Once you come to the, the housing police department and de- that way you will be around your element, mm-hmm. you know, daily and you could win those small battles. So I ended up, you know, going to the New York City Police Academy and at the end, I chose to go to the housing police. At that time, we had a choice. You know, we had the choice to either go to housing, transit or regular city precinct control. Mm-hmm. I chose to go to housing. And when I chose to go to housing, I ended up in Harlem in a place called P- PSA 6, which is right in central Harlem. And basically it controlled, it, it patrolled the areas of uh, St. Nick houses, uh, Drew Hamilton, um, Grant, Manhattanville, Dykeman, Polo Grounds, um, Wagner houses, Lincoln houses, you know, and in a majority of the area in um, central Harlem. And you had a full career on the force, had right? a full career on the force. 20 years? 21 years. 21 years on yes. the force. But at some point, you applied to law school. Yeah. Applied, when was that? I applied to law school after. So you finished your degree at, I, as, as, at some point. I finished. I, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. I actually went to the police department, went through the ranks. You know, um, two years into, two or three years into the police department, the police departments wind up merging. At that time, I met a gentleman in the police department. He was a lieutenant. You know, he was, he was my sergeant at that time. He became a lieutenant. His name was Mike, Mike Leahy. You know, he was a big influence in my career. He was like, listen, you know what? You're a great kid. You know what? But, you know, being on patrol, you know, it's not where you're going to shine. You know, he was like, and um, also my sergeant, his name was uh, Vinnie Colombo. Great, great, great man. They were like, listen, being on patrol is not where you're going sh- to shine. He was like, you know where you're going to shine? You're going to shine in narcotics. That's mm. what you're going to make your influence. One, because... You're, you're from here. You know what to look for. And two, that's where you're going to set your mark. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to narcotics right after we merged. Right after we merged. Months after the police department's merged, I went straight into narcotics. Mm-hmm. And I became an undercover police officer. I was an undercover, a true undercover. People think that, oh, uh, these undercovers out here are the ones that, you know, they see every day in football jerseys or right. clad shirts. Oh, those are the undercovers. Those are not the Ds. Mm-hmm. No. They are true hardcore undercovers that don't carry ID. Yeah. You know, that carry different types of weapons. You know, I can't give up too much because there still are undercovers out there mm-hmm. doing the job. And these are the undercovers at that time that created, that paved, that led the way so these neighborhoods could be cleaned up the way they are today. Mm-hmm. And that's why you got places like Harlem that are cleaned up. You got places in the South Bronx that are cleaned up. You got places in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, all those nice, trendy locations. Back in the day, they weren't nice and trendy. You right. know, there were, there, were, there were ladies and gentlemen like myself who went out there and put their lives on the line to clean those places up. Mm-hmm. So you switched to narcotics, undercover, finished your degree as well at some point in that process. Uh, we move on, mm-hmm. you know. Um, then at one time, I went to you know, internal affairs. Okay. Later on in my career as an undercover, I ended up going into internal affairs. And I, when I was in internal affairs, I was in a special unit. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I was in a surveillance unit. 
we handle high profile cases. You know, I'm a straight up dude. You know, um, I don't hold back. You know, um, I'm not gonna let you take the shield. You know, and I'm gonna be honest with you. And this is what it is. You know, so I was in the surveillance unit for a while. You know, um, and we we monitored corruption. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what? Just like life, you know, you have bad apples everywhere. You know, I mean, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So. The law school piece. You still haven't told me how you got right, to applying so, to law school. So the law school piece. So the law school piece. So after I retired and I retired from narcotics as a squad, as a squad supervisor, supervisor detective squad, um, that's a that's a certain rank, like a specialty rank, a designation, mm-hmm. you know, for a sergeant, you know, in the police department. It's sort of like, you know, the rank of a lieutenant, but without the lieutenant bars, you know, so like, you know, a master sergeant, a mm-hmm. command sergeant major, you know, equivalent of that, you know. So um, I was in charge of a tactical response unit, a shooting team, you know, at that time. I retired in 2012. And when I said to I said to myself, I'm gonna do everything I didn't do as a younger man, so I'm gonna go back to school and finish up. I ended up going to culinary school for a year. You went from a 21-year career in the NYPD to culinary school. Yeah, I went to culinary mm-hmm. school for a year. You know, I wanted to find myself and went why not. And I thought that, you know, getting myself back in a sort of an academic sort of way and also learning a, a trade, you know, learning how to cook, learning the trade, you know, that would be beneficial. And when I was in culinary school, I had the opportunity to go to a workshop or a seminar, you know, that was for adult educate, education, mm-hmm. you know, and for continuing adult education. And I ended up at a small college in Westchester and Bronxville called Concordia. And that's where I finished my degree. Mm-hmm. And to things to come full boat, I ended up getting a a degree in business. (laughs) So wait, okay. So we just came full circle because it started, right? Your college career started at Stern. And then you ended up after all of that. (laughs) But first of all, as someone who had to take micro and macro, that's legitimate fear. I was scared. Econ is not a game. It was no game. But you know what? I came to master it Mm -hmm. as an older man. And I was like, yo, what was I afraid of all those years ago? You know, and that's what it really down to. Mm-hmm. It was an economics class that really, like, <laughs> it wasn't history that I walked up late. It was an economics class that, like, huh. Right. So, you know, I wound up um, getting my degree in um, business administration, mm-hmm. you know, and I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to apply to law school, you know, and I'm going to go for it. And I ended up, you know, staying and finishing up at Concordia. After I finished my bachelor's, I ended up getting into their master's program and I got a master's in business. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I started applying to law school because, you know, I said, you know what, instead of me being here for three years, I'm going to take the fourth year, finish up this master's. It's quick. You know, I can because I'm just rolling right over. You know what? I'm going to start applying to law schools and I started applying to law schools. And I thought I was going to and my heart was set on getting into law school. Mm-hmm. But at that time, you know, when I was doing pursuing my master's, I also was a grad assistant to the professor who was teaching finance. Okay. And what I did was I taught finance for a little while to, you know, tutor finance to, you know, my cohort, Mm -hmm. you know, and people who were strong and in business and whatnot like that. And it kind of doing a decent job at Mm -hmm. it, you know, and, um, you know, and while all these law school applications were coming back, you know, my professor at that time, his name is Philip Rothman. He was like, you know what, maybe that's not your calling. Mm -hmm. Maybe this might be your calling, you know? And what happened was, you know, I applied, he had me apply to a doctoral program, a doctorate in um, education, um, executive leadership at St. John's Fisher at Iona. That was kind of a rigorous, you know, um, type of 
type of, um, you know, application. You know, definitely it was, you know, I thought applying to law school was hard. You know, trying to get into a doctor, doctor, doctoral program is <laughs> off the chain. <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of interviews, right. a bunch of writing, you know. And, you know, I started getting feedback, you know, from all these law schools. And the LSAT wasn't a friend of mine. <laughs> the LSAT is you know, <laughs> a serious situation. You know, and and at, that, at that time, I had all types of things going on. I, I was having, I had detached retina. You know, I, was, I took the LSAT blind almost, you know, and I wrote to the LSAT people and I told myself, listen, I have detached retina. Is mm-hmm. there any way that I can have a, you know, get a pass or, you know, get an altered ex- examination with a, the, you can um, highlight the words. It can make the, make the font bigger and whatnot like that. And they were like, nope. And I had doctors write notes to them and they were still like, no. So I took the LSAT twice with messed up eyes, mm-hmm. you know, and you no, know, it didn't work out for me. You know, I mean, I didn't hit the mark that I was supposed to hit, that I should have hit. Mm-hmm. And I could have got into Pace. I could have got into Turo, could have got into CUNY. You know, those are schools that I really wanted to get into because those are schools are, that are, you know, based for public service. And that's what, sure. you know, I, I wanted to do. But, you know, when all those letters were coming back, I got into one school in California, you know, and it was in the Berkeley area of California. And I was ecstatic about that. But I have young sons, mm-hmm. you know, and I wasn't going to make that move to California. So, you know, at that time, I wind up getting into the doctorate program. And you are a doctoral candidate today. Yes, I am today. I'm a doctoral candidate preparing to defend my dissertation proposal for the next couple of Weeks or months? <laughs> oh, you you close, close then. Very close. Couple of weeks, couple of months. Like, I'm, I'm like I'm like I finished my chapter three basically, mm-hmm. and I finished my chapter two, one and two. So my intro is done. My my um, literary review is still is done, but it's still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. We working on that right now. And but my methodology chapter, my chapter three is basically done. And you know, shouts out to Sister Remisha. <laughs> Did the hair go before the uh, doctoral program or during? The hair went with the job. The hair went with the 20-year NYPD. Got it. You know, back then I used to have the Gumby Slope. Not the Gumby, though. the Gumby Slope. (laughs) So tell me. No more in the S-curl. That's what with. I can't even picture you with an S-curl. I had the S-curl with the fade, with the Uh, half moon part. No. It was pretty. (laughs) So, but listen, before we let you get out of here, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. A time I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, I would say that would be uh, Thanksgiving 1993 on patrol in Harlem um, went to a call. Family was making Thanksgiving dinner for their family in Wagner houses and gentleman had a heart attack while his wife was cooking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get there and this is where that supervisor I told you earlier says I wear my heart on my sleeve, mm-hmm. you know, and we get there and we're trained at that time. We had some sort of training in CPR when we went to police academy and, and whatnot. But um, barely, rarely or barely do you ever really use it. You usually wait for EMS to come sure. to administer. And you remember around that time, that's the time when, you know, AIDS was still, you know, mm-hmm. the fear of it right. was still on the rise. And people, were they didn't want to touch anyone or didn't want to, you know, put their hands on anyone to deal with anyone and whatnot like that. And I get there, you know, and me and my partner, Armando Rosas, we get there and um, 
you know, the, the gentleman's laying there on the couch and, you know, you could see him falling out and whatnot. And the wife's there, she's crying. You know, you got this kid's there, you know, you know, they're crying, you know, saying, do something, do something. Can you do something? You know, where we call it for, you say, the bus. Mm-hmm. EMS. Uh, we call the bus and so we're trying to get ambulance there forthwith and whatnot. And I decide, I said, you know what? I'm going to give this man CPR, mm-hmm. you know? So I gave him mouth to mouth, you know? It wasn't direct mouth to mouth. It was like, cut my hands mm-hmm. in a cup, put my hands like this, what you call it? Blew into his, blew into his chest, gave him chest, composed, or whatever, you know, to try to save this man. And I did enough for when EMS came, you know, they could transfer him to, at that mm-hmm. time, North General Hospital was in Harlem right there. So they could get him there to keep to keep him going and whatnot. And I saved his life about, I got, I got him to a point where he was stable enough in order for his older children who did not live mm-hmm. in, in the state of New York and his fam- other family that lived outside of New York to come to New York for that week to get a chance to say goodbye. Wow. You know, but... When I walked into the police precinct, I caught hell from supervisor who said, you know, don't ever put your life on the line like that, you know, whatever like that. Don't ever, you know. Put your life on the line. This was definitely 1993. Yeah, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. don't ever, you know, you know, you know, you open yourself up to, you know, whatever. And then, you know, you put your mouth on someone and whatnot. You don't know what this person has or whatever whatever like that. But I didn't look at it that way, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, I looked I looked at it as, you know, those kids being me. Yeah. You know, and looking up, I saw those when I saw the fear and the and the hurt those kids had, I, I, I could relate to it. I saw that in their eyes and I wasn't gonna let that, you know, alter, you know, we live a life of service. Yeah. You know, I mean, and one of the pledges you pledge when you do one of the oaths you take when you come into the police department is in partnership with the community. We, we pledge to, and I believe by that, mm-hmm. you know, and I also believe in we hel- are held to a higher standard of integrity than others. Absolutely. Because of what we do, you know, and a lot of people don't believe in that. Trust me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, and that's what I, you know, that's what I hold myself to. And, and I was like, you know what, this isn't, you know, I'm not going to let this happen. You know, I'm not going to let, you know, at least, you know, and so they wrote a nice letter mm-hmm. and why not, you know, and, you know, thanked, you know, said, you know, the family got a chance to at least say goodbye, mm-hmm. you know, and he got a chance to at least, the person who had the heart attack got a chance to at least say some words to his family mm-hmm. before he ended up passing away later that week. Wow. But at least he had a chance to say goodbye and they had a chance to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And that was that. So you've had this storied career. I'm sure that's one of many stories for a 21 year now I um, teach. trajectory. Now you teach. You're going to successfully, let's just put this out there, successfully defend your dissertation <laughs> in, in a few weeks or a few months. Yeah. And then after that, in a few words, what is on the horizon for Dr. Pope? I would like to be a president of a HBCU. Look at that. That's what I would want to be, you know, because okay. that's what this young man, that young man, you know, set out on a mission in academia in 1984 to do. It that'd be full circle. Whether it be HBCU or a small community college or, you know, or, you know, you know something big or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, still somewhere where I can have an influence and play a part. So right now I'm at uh, my adjunct 
at Concordia College. They gave me that opportunity, which it eventually became my alma mater. Yeah, I got my bachelor's. I finished my bachelor's there. I finished up my master's there. And, um, you know, I teach. They, they have a brand new department, criminal justice department. And since, you know, I had a long career in, in a criminal justice, field of criminal justice, you know, I'm actually working as an adjunct. So I'm adjunct professor of criminal justice. I teach introduction to criminal justice. I teach, I'm going to teach um, criminology coming up in the next Next, fall, next spring semester. And currently, um, I teach a course that I help create called Policing in Diverse Communities, mm. which is very much needed, you know, and, and, and that being a sense, I give a seminar called Knowing Your Rights Seminar, um, Police um, Community Interactions and How to Survive the Encounter. Um, I see myself always giving back. Um, currently, I am a criminal defense investigator for the Legal Def- Legal um, Aid Society of New York. Um, I started doing that right after Eric Gardner was uh, killed mm-hmm. in Staten Island. I've been in the office ever since. I started out in the Staten Island office. Shouts out to Staten Island Legal Aid. I love those guys. I've worked in the Queens office, and currently I work in the Bronx office. And being in the Bronx, it seems like coming full circle because I'm in communities that I'm very familiar with, and I'm dealing with people that I know. Mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And I do believe in second chances. Absolutely. You know, I believe in second chances and I believe in giving back, you know? Um, and I don't believe it's a us versus them mm-hmm. mentality. You know, even though I come from a police background, you know what? I am fair and I am impartial, you know? Um, there are lines of gray, you know? Um, you know, you, you know, you there, there can be a emergence, you know, between the police department and communities of color, you know, and I'm here for that. You know, um, not all police officers are bad and not all people of color are bad. Mm -hmm. You know, um, our communities are great, you know. Um, You know, it's it's just comes to a point where, you know, we have to learn how to work within each other and work with what we got. For sure. You know. Are you, do you have an online presence? Are there places people can find you? Um, you know, I have a Facebook page, but um, my Facebook page is Ty Pope, but it's private. And, but my people that, you know, if you friend me on Facebook, you know, I, I have an Instagram also, you know. And are you on LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. My LinkedIn page is public. You can, mm-hmm. my LinkedIn page is out there, but, you know, where, you know, there's never any negativity, you know, on my pages. You know, everything is always forward, onward and upward. You know, I'm an alpha to the core. You know, I believe in progressions. You know, I believe in manly deeds. You know, I believe in scholarship of, of the utmost. And most of all, love of all mankind. That's what we about, you know. And um, that's what I'm about, you know. And, um, you know, give a shout out to the ETL chapter. There's an upcoming HBCU college tour, you know, um, within the next couple of weeks. I think the 18th and 19th, we're going to be heading down to like 15 colleges. You know, that's another positive thing. You know, we sponsor. I've been personally sponsoring um, a couple of students Mm -hmm. to go on that, you know, um, and that's where it's at. You know, always, always here to, to, you know, give a helping hand, always here to lend out. I mean, one of my cops, one of my former cops that used to work with, you know, one of the detectives used to work with me and he friend of mine for years used to call me Moses mm-hmm. and whatnot. And a lot of other cops didn't understand that. And he said, you know, you call you Moses because one is because when you walk through the door, you kind of part the sea, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but one is because you feel like, you know, I let my people go, you know, but it's not about letting my people go. It's about being fair, right? you know, being fair with it. Well, I think that's a good place to end on. Let me say it early. Dr. Pope, 
Thank you. <laughs> we enjoyed having you on. This was a good conversation. Thank you, Dr. Ty Pope. Dr. Ty Pope. I love the sound of that. <laughs> I'll be looking for that press release when you get that uh, presidential installment for sure. Yeah. I don't think my journey is end yet. No, it hasn't. Absolutely not. That. I think that there's still, you know, you're never too, you're never too old to, uh, you know, follow your dreams. And mm-hmm. I was told that from a from a gentleman who's an older gentleman who was one of my professors at Concordia, Tom Paternan. And he was like, listen, and he's 70 something years old when he's almost in his 80s. And he's like, listen, you know, I started my life at 65. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, follow your dreams regardless. So law school might not be out of the way. Hey, well, somebody who went, I should be a proponent of it. But um, uh, listen, we'll listen, talk after. We'll, we'll talk, talk after. Uh, to our listeners, you know, we're big on networking here. So if. Dr. Pope, I'm going to just keep saying it because it's going to happen in a few weeks, has had a storied career um, with many experiences. If something interested you, make the connection. You know, we're all about making the connections here. Find him online. As always, make sure you like, share and subscribe to this podcast and remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.